winter of 2014 will be remembered by those on the west coast of Ireland as the most savage and living memory. Two huge Atlantic swells came in January and February of that year. In northwest Mayo, under the shadow of Croke Patrick, Marcia Meran, a 36-year-old international best-selling author, was struggling to finish her most ambitious book. At the same time, she was facing and losing her biggest battle. Hi, how are you? Hi, yeah. Sorry for bothering you. You're grand. My name is Jason. I'm making a radio program with RT Radio One. Yeah. I was just wondering, um, have have you? Did you live here last year? Yes. Did here. you know the lady who was living next door to you? At yes, all? I did. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to come in for a cup of tea? Or Would something? you mind? Thanks. No. Marcia's neighbours in the small seaside village of Lacanby don't have much to say about Marcia. She's someone they never got to know. From January to April of 2014, she lived in a chalet across from the local pub. But it's as if she was a ghost amongst them, rarely seen and rarely heard from. Therese Staunton from the pub in the Canby, Staunton's Bar, at the foot of Crowpatrick around the shores of Clubay. We're acquainted with Marcia simply through a chance meeting. She um, was renting a house locally and we would see her sitting on the park bench just opposite the pub from time to time and in inclement weather sometimes she was able to pick up the Wi-Fi from our connection so uh, we invited her in several times just as a courtesy because the weather was so inclement and um, she seemed like a lonely figure. We weren't, we didn't interact very much but just a simple invitation and she politely declined and that was about as much um, interactions we had with Marcia. On Wednesday, April 30th, 2014, just after quarter past one in the afternoon, Guardian Westport found Marcia Meran dead inside her rubber-strewn bungalow. The circumstances of her death left many questions. At the end of that year, the coroners would find that Marcia died from diseases unknown, with an open verdict recorded. How did Marcia come to die lying face down in her bedroom, naked from the waist with just a cardigan on, in a seemingly self-imposed isolation? Scattered throughout the chalet were pans of liquid, later identified as urine. So who was Marcia Meran, and how had she come to spend almost a third of her young life here in Ireland? Less than 10 years earlier, Marcia was coming to the Irish public's attention when she appeared on RTE's The Afternoon Show, promoting her first book, Pomegranate Soup. Born in Iran on the eve of the Islamic Revolution, our next guest was destined to live a life full of adventure and upheaval. We'll talk about that in a minute. Having lived in Argentina, Australia and America, she came to the Irish shores for love. With all these fantastic experiences, she's written a beautiful book based on fiction, but immersed in the culture and flavours of Iran. Marsha Moran, you're very welcome. Thank you. I made your surname sound like Moran. Yeah. Moran. 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 Like Moran. Pomegranate soup. Yes. Fantastic cover. 
It is. It's beautiful. It is. Beautiful I love red. the colors. Yeah. We'll talk about the book in a minute, but first I want to talk about you. I'm okay. fascinated with your background. You were born in Iran. Yes. And you're, you and your family had to leave in a hurry, to say the least. What happened? Well, the Islamic Revolution hit in 1979, and I was two back then. And my family was from a, a very small minority called Baha'is, which is a religious group. And they were, they were really, you know, in danger constantly. And when the revolution hit, it was worse for them. We escaped. We escaped basically on the eve of the revolution. We were in danger no matter what. Mm. So we left, and we left to go to Argentina. You're there with your mom and dad in the picture. Yes, there. that's You're Iran. You're a little baby. Yeah. And tell me that, I mean, Iran sounds, I've never been. Today, millions of families are being displaced through war. They seek desperate ways to improve their lives in new countries. Long before Ireland became her home, Marsha's family fled their homeland, spending a lifetime wandering the globe. For Marsha, this set the seeds of an odyssey, better measured in continents than countries. And in a way, this search for home has defined them. We find her father, Abbas, working as an artist in southern Australia. Okay, Marsha was born in 1977. It's uh, the time that the revolution in Iran was just beginning to happen. When she was born, after mm, well, three days, we brought her from hospital to, to our home. And we had bought a music box with Ferelis, uh, part of Ferelis, you know, Beethoven uh, music, and we always put it there at night uh, to listen, and she, she listened and go to sleep. So let's go to my studio which fortunately is not too far from my house, or my kitchen, actually, which is my favorite place. And uh, yes, this is my studio. And let's, let's go inside to see what we can find. And this, this, is, this is my palace. This is my place of refuge. I come here and paint. Uh, however, I haven't painted for a while and since April 2014 when Marsha died. Two outstanding features came to define Marsha as a woman. The first was her constant moving. The second, her love of food. These two elements were at the core of her writing and both can be traced to her early life. Pomegranate Soup was Marsha's first novel. Published when she was just 28, it became a bestseller, translated into 15 languages, on top of the book charts in a number of countries. After leaving Iran at just the age of two, her family settled in Argentina, and it's there that Marsha's love affair 
with Persian food begun. You know, as soon as we got there, my parents opened up this Middle Eastern cafe in South America, and I was put into a Celtic school, St. Andrews, which we wore kilts and there was bagpipes. Picture of you there. There's a picture of me, the little brown girl in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> That's basically me. <laughs> Not and standing out or anything. No, it's Sia Blondes. I know. Sia <laughs> Blondes and yeah. Pale Skin. So tell me, you went to Argentina. At the young age of four, you're speaking three languages. Three languages, yes. My parents made me say goodnight in uh, Spanish, Farsi, which is Persian, and English. So and it would how be Shabbat Buenas Noches, and Good Night. Yeah. So from Argentina, another upheaval you had to leave. Yes. You know, the again, bad timing, a bad country to be in. Economy fell apart. My parents lost their money. They decided, let's just go to America. After just four years in Argentina, and at the age of six, Marcia and her family moved to America. Eight years later, she was on the move again, this time to Australia. For anyone, let alone a child, this was a transient way of life. A New York Times article penned by Marcia in 2005 gives some insight into the legacy of a lifetime's displacement. Revolutions come in all varieties. For me, the biggest one came at 14, when my parents announced they were divorcing. Somewhere along the line, somewhere between chopping root vegetables and learning to say, let Mary Kay make your day, their marriage had lost ground. My mother and I went to live in Australia, where my grandparents migrated after the revolution in Iran. Australia struck me as barren. I don't think I was fully aware of what was wrong, why I felt so unmoored in Australia. So in 1997, at 19, I left for New York with about 200 bucks in my pocket. I told myself that I was seeking new adventures, but I think I was looking for a place to call home. Some years after Marsh's move to Australia with her mother and younger brother, her mum returned to the US, leaving Marsha and her brother with their father Abbas. Marsha's relationship with her mother never fully recovered. It's interesting listening to you talk how it reminds me how strongly food, it's not just that it's food, it's when it's linked to memory. I mean, your memory of your mother making elephant ears for you, you know, and I'm sure every, everything you describe, I'm sure, is linked to some strong memory for you. I mean, that's what makes food so magical. Yes. It's memory of home, memory of mother, I think, you know, comfort. And there's nothing as primary, as fundamental as, as that first bite your mom gives you, you know, that mushed up, you know, spoonful of food that you get to chew for the first time. Everything is, is back to that. I mean, you know, at every party, everyone gathers around the kitchen. <laughs> there's a reason behind it. Absolutely. I think it comes back to mother, always. Marsha's search for home ended on the west coast of Mayo, her nearest relative 3,000 miles away. During her early 20s in New York, Marcia blossomed into a beautiful woman. Brown, almond-shaped eyes, sallow skin, and long, dark hair. When her body was found, it was reported to be lying in a peaceful-looking manner, without any physical trauma or injury, but in an advanced state of decay. It is suspected that she lay inside the bedroom of her chalet, undiscovered for at least a week. Her last reported sighting 
some two and a half months previous. Marcia had come to Le Canvey on the Atlantic fringe of West Mayo to separate herself from the world, to give herself the space and seclusion to write. A man who knows this area better than most is local poet Paddy Guthrie. Looking down here now on the Canvey village, you can see your, yourself the different colours of the ocean. There's an azure blue that's just jumping out, a cornflower blue, you know. Uh, a Paul Henry sky, if you've ever seen a Paul Henry painting, uh, blue and cloudy, you know. That's not your usual for here, you know. The usual sky here is a gunmetal grey and it hangs low. In the evenings, when you get the light of the sun going down, it slants across the bay, and it gives it its own particular blue. It's a clue bay blue. It's a blue that all of us around here are for, familiar with. It hangs in the air in the evenings. Then you've got Inishlyer Lighthouse, absolutely shining like a gem across the bay. Always the welcoming sight, you know. When you're coming back in the road from Lewisburg, it's one of the first things you spot that lighthouse and you know you're across just level with the mouth of the bay and you're heading in along the Lacanvey Road into Dlosh, down into Morrisk and then along the West Road into, into Westport. Absolutely phenomenal. Classic. Where would you get it? Patchwork. Patchwork, you know. And um, we're underneath Crow Patrick as well, the mountain. Uh, Croak on Egla, it was called in ancient times. Uh, the hill of the eagle. Um, the mountain resonates, you know, it's got, it's got a healing energy. Uh, for all healing, there's a price to pay. Um, you get the healing, but you leave a part of you here. And I think that's what it is about this place. It endears itself to people. It draws you in. But you have to be of a certain, uh, how can I put it, a certain type of person to live with the elements um, that we have here. You can have four seasons, sometimes six seasons in one day. You know, it throws everything at you. And if you're of a melancholy disposition, let us say, the darkness of the landscape can uh, weave a, a spell on you, you know. It was no accident that Marcia finally chose Mayo as her home. Besides the inspiration she found at Croke Patrick, in New York City, she met a Mayo man from Turlock. Marcia, aged 19, was working as a waitress in a bar down the street from Ryan's Irish pub, where Christopher Collins was behind the counter. She tried to get deep with me straight away. It was like about my background. Well, she started off with a whole uh, Sweet 16. She was infatuated with that song when she was in Argentina in Buenos Aires and she said did I know it and I said yes and um, we, I think I played it on the jukebox for her and then she came to sit at the bar and we just talked and talked and talked and talked and talked and talked for hours and then she started playing you know cool like you know that 4.30 in the morning thing where like you know you're not getting any any you know, attention from me, so I'm going to go home, and that was it. And she, you know, I, I played cool, and I said good night, and that was it. And then she was playing hardball, so I decided to switch it up, make her a little jealous. And ten minutes later, she told the girl where to go, and that was it. She was, uh, she was strong enough to say, "Hey, 
that's going to be my man. So that was kind of how it happened. For many of us, the decision to move country or change jobs happens rarely and is fraught with anguish and carefully considered. For Marcia, a wanderer since she was two, life-changing decisions were no big deal. We met on a Friday, moved in together Sunday, engaged about three weeks later, moved to Australia about four months after that. It was like July, I think, of 98. She said to me that she was moving back to Australia. And she said, well, you know, if I'm important enough for you, you got to go with me. So smitten than I was, I was like, all right, I'll give it a shot. So I moved to Australia with her and then we did a year in Australia and then she said, well, I'm moving to Ireland now. And I was like, okay. Newlyweds Chris and Marcia arrived to Ireland in 1998 and settled in Dublin. Marcia found work as a receptionist at Film Base in Temple Bar, where she first met Barbara Henkes. So she was quite a, quite a beautiful looking girl, full of energy, um, you know, so definitely was a good person to have in reception. She was very welcoming and, you know, fun to be around, great sense of humour. So she fitted right in into kind of the organisation that we were, you know, she got on well with everybody. She was a sociable person, friendly. Oh, very sociable, very friendly, um, great laugh, um, great stories uh, from New York when she was she was talking about the time when she was kind of 19 and arrived in New York. And she's a great storyteller. She was uh, very sociable. We definitely had some great nights in Dublin going out and she was easygoing and yeah. She's good fun to be around. When she was in film based, did she did you know that she wanted to be a writer? She was it, it wasn't it was something she talked about and she wanted. It was an aspiration, something she thought about. Um she really she read an awful lot. Like she literally she kind of went through library books and and all the time she had a pile of books beside her. So you, you know like she devoured books. She read an awful lot. You know, so that's really um, so she definitely and she talked about it. She wanted to do it, um, wanted to write a book. After about a year in Ireland, Marcia came home one evening, told Chris she wanted to move back to Australia. Every year, for the early part of the noughties, Marcia would get itchy feet and want to move country. For seven consecutive years, they moved their home between Ireland. Australia and New York. Looking back at this pattern now, it seems that Marcia was in search of something. You know, common sense would have told most people, all right, enough is enough. I mean, I've, I have had more 40-foot containers outside my places than anybody can imagine. I should have, I mean, I, I, I was always about New York. I always loved New York. I didn't want to move from New York. And again, you, when you're in a relationship for your partner, sometimes you give up the things you love the most, further things you love the most. Throughout this restless period of movement, there was one constant in Marsha's life, her relentless ambition to become a writer. This drive paid off when she struck a three-book deal. I, I, I don't know, talking to her later, but I don't think it was that easy. I think she had writ written the book and she was submitting it to publishers and I think they send it to a lot of publishers and but when she got it it was a fantastic deal and it was a three book deal and it was a, it was a big publishing house and yeah I, I remember that she did call me at the time and she was just over the moon Her debut and biggest seller was Pomegranate Soup which she set in the fictional village of Ballinacro County Mayo a village that was underneath Croke Patrick 
I'm Emer Martin, and I'm a writer, a novelist. The Irish Times asked me to interview Marcia, and I suppose they, my husband's Persian, uh, like Marcia. I had that connection. I think that's why they sent me down. And then when I got down there, there were more connections. She was standing there among boxes, and I was standing here in County Meath among boxes, so we had that connection of constantly moving as well. It was a nice little house she had there. Everything was up to the walls and boxes. There was no sense of permanence about it. Struck me as a very joyful time in her life. And she was about to publish this book, which was her heart's desire, her dream. Her career was coming together. Everything was falling into the place. But she was very much uh, giddy and in love. Very warm and welcoming. She, stru uh, she struck me as very uh, beautiful. Beautiful looking girl, especially when you see in the Mayo countryside, Persians are so exotic looking with her, you know, almond shaped brown eyes and her uh, whole demeanor. She was exotic in Castlebar, I'd have to say, and I think she enjoyed that. She enjoyed the contrast of it. But I still kept thinking, Mayo, what would you be doing in Mayo and living in Mayo? I met her in the summer months and it was the most beautiful day. The sun was shining in. And you'd think everything could be perfect when the sun shines in Mayo. But then the sun doesn't always shine in Mayo. <laughs> she, was, she was an exotic woman. I mean, even to be a writer uh, and an artist sets you out. It's, it sets you apart anywhere you go. But also there is uh, uh, the fact that she had married into an Irish family. So she was part of things, but yet apart. Marsha's writing in her first book, Pomegranate Soup, gave little indication that just nine years later, her life would end in the same place that provided inspiration for her debut novel. Back then, her future was bright and her writing hopeful. The book, reflective of her own journey and those things that mattered to her most, the search for home and the joy of food. Marsha Meron grew up surrounded by the evocative power of food. These days, she lives in Ireland, where she wrote the novel Pomegranate Soup. It's the story of Iranian sisters who turn a small Irish town on its ear with their sensual Iranian cooking. The sun began to set over Clue Bay as Marjan leaned back with her tea and marveled at the similarities between the Lunasa festival and her own version of the pomegranate myth. Marjan liked to believe the old stories of Persian soothsayers who held a different vision for the tart fruit's purpose in life. She liked to remember that above all else, above all the unfortunate connotations of death and winter, the pomegranate was, and always would be, the fruit of hope, of new things to come. It had shown even her that some of the best recipes are the unwritten ones, the ones that happen when you pour yourself a glass of Shiraz and put on a Billie Holiday record. Because like it or not, life will go on with or without you. Forever blooming in someone else's back garden, giving flavor to yet another pot of pomegranate soup. Yes, that's how she would like to think of that particular sweetness. The myriad seedlings that could only really be the flower of new beginnings. The book Propel Marsha into a world of book tours, readings and media interviews. Here she is in 2006, 
appearing on US radio. I married an Irishman, first of all. I've been married to him for eight years, so I'm Irish in a lot of ways now. <laughs> but the two cultures have a lot of similarities, and there's the language, the love of the language. They both have the love of poetry. The Irish family is very strong, and so is the Persian family. So I began to see there's something the same. But as far as having these three Iranian sisters come into this town and be different, the big difference between the Irish and the Iranians is the food. <laughs> uh, big difference. You know, Irish people are great drinkers. Iranians cannot hold their alcohol. And vice versa when it comes to food. You know, Iranians, their cuisine is one of their cornerstones of their culture. It's considered a great art. And what I discovered living in Ireland, living with an Irishman, is that Food is just there for sustenance. You know, it's not there for flavor. It's not there for enjoyment or pleasure. And, you know, Ireland has changed a lot in the last 10 years. And, you know, they've discovered a lot of cuisines and a lot of ways of making even traditional Irish food to make it more interesting. But I think in the 80s especially, it wasn't something that was the norm. And, you know, it's a nice, gentle clash you know for all the joy and happiness that the book brought it was a hard-won journey for Marcia who had struggled with the pressures that come with writing for her husband Chris the publication and success of the book came as a relief she was Marcia again I mean she was so happy it was the happiness was like you know it was like when we first met it was like there was no care in the world she just she was the spirit was like we had fun we had a lot of fun and then the book was launched in Ireland and, you know, then she went to Poland to launch it and England was uh, amazing and, like, you know, th- we had our marketing ploy and then we... Uh, Italy was, I, th- I think, the first country that took her out on a tour and brought both of us out and paid for us and brought us out to Italy and, you know, that was exciting and she was a big deal out there. She was... Because she was this smoking hot Persian writer and, you know, paparazzi used to chase her down. I mean, she got the... The whole fame thing was happening there, you know? And she was on TV shows and every magazine. And she did, like, really, really well over there. Like, they loved her. Shortly after that, Marcia and Chris settled in Brooklyn. And in the New York Times article Marcia wrote around then, it seemed that the success of the book and this latest move had brought some sense of permanence to her life. My husband's name is Christopher same as the patron saint of travellers. Christopher and I lived for two years in a cottage in the west of Ireland. But now our days abroad are over, and we're back in the United States. We've settled in Brooklyn, where, of all the places I've been, I feel most myself. I understand Brooklyn in my bones. The juxtaposition of so many voices, so many souls, so many foods, so many cultures, It is in this most American of cities that I've chosen to set down roots. Because it seems to me no other place better embodies the world. When people ask me where I'm from, I say I'm Persian, born in Iran. I write and dream in English. I curse in Spanish. And after a few pints of Guinness, I dance a mighty Irish jig. And when people ask me where I live, I tell them Brooklyn. Brooklyn is my home. It was around this time that life began to take on a different hue for Marcia. Some years earlier, she had lost her American green card. One of the conditions to hold on to that card 
that she had been granted as a child was to enter the US at least once every two years. Her search for home had, ironically, left her without the option of putting down roots in the one place she now wanted to call home. Around this time, Marcia had been granted Irish citizenship, and perhaps that acceptance is what eventually drew her back. During the period of 2006 to 2009, Marcia's life began to unravel. Her second book failed to reach the heights of the first, and due to only having a US holiday visa, her time in the States and with her husband Chris became less and less. On one particular visit, their relationship came to a head. Before she came back, she said some not so nice things that, you know, weren't true. And it was very, very hard to swallow. So um, she came back and she got off the airplane and um, she said something that, you know, when you haven't seen somebody in so long and you've missed them so much, you know, you expect a little hug and a whatnot, but that's not the reaction I got. So, I mean, not going into it, but it just wasn't the reaction I was looking for. So uh, that nice, I was like, it's just not fair, so we need to take a break. And that's how that kind of happened. Chris and Marsha eventually divorced in 2008. For the next six years, Marsha would wander country and home, Melbourne, Leitrim, upstate New York, Dublin, and finally Mayo. Retracing her journey into writing, the creative tension that accompanied her three books was something that she struggled with. This, coupled with the denial of her US visa, placed Marsha under stress. Even though divorced, Chris was still someone she confided in. And she'd call me from Australia, she'd call me from wherever she was, she'd call me. And sometimes it was happiness, like you would not believe on the phone, and other times it was not the person I ever met. But again, what could I do now? You know, the umbilical cord had been cut. And like I said, you know, it's, it's amazing how easy it is to forget where everything came from and where it happened and what, what was done. But I mean, she was, she was so motivated on the book. I mean, the, the, the attention, I mean, she got just so infatuated with the next book. It became, it's, it, it's, consumed her she became consumed by her book let's be real I mean she was the, my first true love and of course I followed everything and tried to keep an eye on her the best way I could I mean which was like people would tell me what was going on I just I didn't have that physical contact with her Marsha's second book Rose Water and Soda Bread failed to reach the heights of her debut novel yearning for that initial success Marsha would spend the final six years of her life attempting to finish her third novel. During some of this time, she spent over a year in the village of Keshkarrigan in Leitrim, a place where her landlady Carmel Murphy and her husband Liam held out the hand of friendship to the then 32-year-old Iranian-born author. So... Initially, we would have, um, so I'll say we, myself and my husband, uh, Liam, you know, invited Marcia in for dinner to the house. You know, very conscious she has arrived in this village where she knows nobody from another country. She's on her own. Uh, invited her in for dinner, introduced her to some friends, um, brought her down to the pub. I think she came once 
with us, maybe twice. Would have continued to ask or send her a text, do you want to come down? Now, we didn't go that often, but, you know, we... Yeah, we we would have offered her the opportunity to to come to come out with us. Um, I suppose I was conscious we, we were the the landlord, and we had to respect Marcia's right to live whatever way she wanted to. So not not everyone wants to socialise. Not everybody needs to have a lot of company. We were just offering her the option if, if she wanted to, um, and she did take us up initially on things like say dinner going to the cinema dinner with another of my friends she came to my friend's house for dinner another time so there were there were you know definitely a number of occasions in the early months when Marcia socialized with us to a limited degree but then it stopped um and I, I really don't know why. Um, and I, I, I do think, it, you know, the type of setup in cash, relatively easy type of place to, you know, make friends and get to know people, if that's what she had wanted to do. After the first few months in cash, Marcia was rarely seen. For Christmas 2009, Carmel and her husband Liam bought Marcia a present of some driving lessons hoping that she might get out of her apartment a little more. She never took those lessons, and in mid-2010, Marcia left Leitrim, landing some months later in Australia. I knew by 2010 that the book was going to be, this is going to be even worse than the first two, you know? I knew it. The book was overwhelming her, and the reality was, was not there anymore. You know, every everything and any anything was either watching her, stalking her, or messing with her. For Barbara, one of the lasting friendships that Marcia first made when she arrived in Dublin in 1998, there was little contact during those years, something that Barbara had grown accustomed to as part of their friendship. Towards the end of 2013, Marcia arrived at Barbara's home in Dublin with one focus, to finish her third book. But she came, it was, yeah, January 3rd, 2014. And then she stayed with us for, yes, three or four weeks. And um, it was still the third book. And then it was difficult. It was just, um, you know, she would work nights um, or be up at night. um, And we wouldn't see her during the day at all. And um, that's very difficult in a small house. And my daughter was doing kind of exams and finishing stuff off. So, um, and it's 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 a small enough house, you know. And and she, but she was very much. She was just so like I'm working. That's how I am. I worked, you know. And there was some great, like you know, there was one or two evenings where we kind of met, you know. But otherwise, it was really just she wouldn't see her. She was going to look for a place in Dublin, and then she said, um, she called me in work, said, "No, I'm moving to Mayo." So are you sure? And it was our, I don't know how many times we had this conversation. And it was literally the same response again. She goes, you know me, you know, laughing off, not giving any more information. I'm moving to Mayo. I said, like, it's, it's, it's just been this reoccurring. Um, so I came home that evening and she showed me and it was a 
house by the sea she had seen on Daft or my home, one of the two sides I gave her. And yeah, it wasn't as charming now as like she would be very particular about, you know, where she'd live and how she dress and everything. So it was just a bungalow by the but it was by the beach and but it was wet and it was miserable and but she was just no, that's it. Again, but then again, laughing it off again and go like, that's, that's now, then I can really focus on writing. I've finished the book in May, or, you know, that's how it should be, you know. On January 18th, 2014, Marcia arrived to Le Canby. She met the estate agent to get the keys of her chalet, stating that she wanted the house in this location to write a book. The last anybody saw of Marcia was towards the end of February. Her love affair with food had ended. The only remnants of food found in her chalet were empty crisp packets and empty chocolate bar wrappers. At some point around then, she sent an email to her father, Abbas. I've spent the last five months working on the edit for my third book. It has been a painful process to say the least. Hardly a night has passed that I have not woken up midway through sleep body drenched in sweat, heart beating out the rhythms of some ancient tarantella inside my chest. My legs throbbed, both during the day and at night, the kind of throbbing that shook whatever seat I was on, and I looked like I had aged ten years, eyes drooping, skin ashen, a vague recollection that I had not washed my hair for a week straight. During the final weeks of Marsha's life, she continued the pattern of sleeping by day and writing by night. She was only seen once by her next door neighbor in the neighboring chalet across the path. Um, I'd never set eyes on her until one day I was in the kitchen and she happened to be sitting at her table in the dining room and I could see right through and she seemed to be working away, obviously writing. I knew that she was a recluse because we never saw her. Then I had noticed that there was nobody around the house and I went into her shed where there were plastic bags full of rubbish and I um, got on to the estate agent and advised her that, that the tenant obviously had moved out. The last communication noted at the inquest into Marsha's death was dated April 10th, 2014. A text message she sent to her letting agent. I have been vomiting blood for the last few weeks. I'll get back to you in a few days to see what I'm going to do about things. I'm still pretty sick. The letting agent replied, asking if Marcia had been to the doctor. No response. Numerous calls and texts between April 12th and 23rd, still no response. On April 30th, at 10 past seven, the letting agent called to the chalet. The lights shone into the early morning light with no response at the door. They returned that afternoon, entering the house to find Marcia's badly decomposed remains on the bedroom floor. After the investigation and autopsy following a sudden death, Marcia's father Abbas and her ex-husband Chris followed her remains down the M4 motorway to a Dublin crematorium. Marcia died and I just mourn, especially it's not easy. You know, I remember I was, uh, after cremation, they gave me a box and I put in my um, 
luggage and my backpack in my backpack and then walking from that cremation place a church to the hotel where I was staying I can't express I can't say what I was you know I was uh, what what was my feeling you know my daughter in ash in my back pack Marsha Marsha's funeral was a small one her mother and younger brother didn't travel from the US for her cremation the distance that pervaded her life proved a barrier to a last reunion back in Australia Abbas Marsha's father does what any father might do when they lose a child begins to wonder what he could have done differently if I thought anything about our movement what would happen if we were staying in Iran where there was no revolution yes we would go to United States with the same as all other people and go back that was the idea they go to United States study get a master come back get good job and live the life you know better than before but it didn't happen so we we became um, without home homeless basically and uh, and then when, when you don't know what where is your home you don't know what exactly to do how to invest in your life how for what for where had Marsha wanted to engage in the communities she found herself in she would have found people willing to do so Marsha suffering from poor mental health alienated herself from everybody she went to the most western point in Europe to find solace to complete her work but failed and paid the ultimate price I think I'm still kind of trying to figure out you know this you know could have done things different should have noticed would have been able to do you know should she should have just but you know I've been over this before like this kind of why are you moving to the west of Ireland again you know we lived so many times over the years we had that conversation and she was laughing it off and she was not old and she just made this decision and she was very firm in this decision so I don't know obviously she wasn't well so would that have helped her would have would that have changed anything she knew what she was doing do you know she was in, she had a going to go to Mayo and I'm going to live there and I'm going to finish the book it's not easy to slip through the cracks in life but if someone is determined enough or unwell enough it is possible it's like the demons brought her back there it's just you know that was her demon that you know, I mean, Quopatrick is magical for people. It was her mountain. It was the isolation. She was never about isolation either, but, you know, she thought it was for the work and, what you know, she had to do it. And, I mean, I, I, I feel that she was so alone. That's the, which is the hard part. I feel that she had nobody in her life. It doesn't matter what I say or anyone says. There was nobody in her life. But I feel that she was just so alone. She had nobody. And that was her, that was her muse. I think her best friend was that mountain. Next month, Marsha's third and final book titled The Margaret Thatcher School of Beauty will be published, completed by her father Abbas. Her first novel, Pomegranate Soup, is currently being developed into a film. Even in death, Marsha remains a wanderer. Her ashes resting in southern Australia. <laughs>